الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي إلى يوم الدين I'll praise you to Allah May Allah's peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day The topic principles of tafsir is actually a very vast topic which I couldn't hope to cover in a half an hour session, to be quite frank. So what I will be talking about is only an aspect of these principles, you know, giving you some food for thought that would encourage you to do some further research and study to improve your understanding of what is necessary, what is the methodology, you know, how should we go about interpreting or reading the interpretations of the Quran. Ibn Kathir, one of the major scholars of Tafsir, had outlined a set of steps or levels through which a person should pass when they attempt to develop a commentary on the Quran. And when I say tafsir, that's what, I, that's what we're referring to. Tafsir coming from the Arabic verb tafsara, yufassiru tafsiran, which means really to make clear or to make understandable. In the Islamic context, it, works, it, it, it relates specifically to the Quran, uh, how we make clear or make understandable the text of the Quran. Now, what Ibn Kathir proposed was that, and of course the principle that he proposed concerning the tafsir was something which he sat down and reasoned and logically put together as the steps without consultation with the Quran itself, with the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad what he had said, what he did and the methodology used by the companions themselves in explaining the Qur'an. He as a scholar, what he did was he looked at the information which is available to him. And then from that he extracted principles. But these, as I said, these steps are not specifically outlined, you will not find in the Qur'an where Allah says step one in understanding the Qur'an is this, step two is this, no. Now you find from Prophet Muhammad that he said step one is this, step two is this, no. But what scholars Ibn Kathir and others have done is they've looked at that methodology used by Prophet Muhammad They've looked at what the companions uh, did, how they approached the teaching of the Qur'an, and from their practice, they extracted these principles. Now, the first principle which uh, Ibn Kathir proposed, should be followed 
uh, in the interpretation of the Quran. And actually, I should say, before we go in to look at uh, this first principle, we should also understand why it was even necessary to uh, interpret the Quran. Allah has said, you know, that He has revealed a book in clear Arabic. You know, He has revealed it for mankind for their for their guidance. So one may ask, why then do we need to have a tafsir, an explanation? Why can't we just pick up the Quran and deal with it ourselves? The point is that truly, if Allah had willed, wished, He could have made the Qur'an so clear, every single point in it so clear, that no one would have to look anywhere else. The reason why we have to seek a commentary of the Qur'an was deliberately done by Allah. This was Allah. Allah chose to make the Qur'an in such a way that we need a commentary. And this existed from the time of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad themselves. Arabic was their language. The Qur'an was revealed in their language. Yet, there are things, there are points, there are verses, ideas, etc. in the Qur'an which were placed there deliberately by Allah about which the companions had to ask Prophet Muhammad Just to give you a couple of examples so you know you can put it in context. We have uh, an example which is related by Ibn Mas'ud which he said the verse, those who believe do not cover their faith with transgression. Or the term used is zulm. And uh, this is to, uh, verse 82 of Surah Al-An'am. When this verse was revealed, some of the companions of the Prophet were very distressed because who among them were not committing some forms of zulm? And here Allah has said, those who believe, those who truly believe, do not cover their faith with zulm, transgression, wrong, sin. So they were distressed. They felt bad, I mean, because everybody is committing something. So, you know, what does this mean? Does it mean we are not true believers? So they had to come back to the Prophet and they came and they asked. We are all committing zulm. What does this mean, Ya Rasulullah? So he said to them, It is not as you think. Do you not recall that Luqman said to his son, Verily shirk, associating partners with God, is the greatest form of zulm? It is shirk that Allah is talking about here. Those who believe do not cover their faith with shirk. Zulm is a general term but this, the, the, what it was specifically referring to here, what Allah is specifically referring to here, is shirk, associating partners with Allah. But as to sins, none of us are free from sin. So, this is just an example that said, 
wherein the companions were compelled to go back to the Prophet Muhammad to get clarity on the meanings of the Quran. And as I said, Allah could have put in this verse those who believe do not cover their face with shirk. Don't tell me this is not difficult. Allah, instead of using the term though, he could have used shirk. And then the companions would have been fine. They understood that clearly. They would not have had to go back. So this is something deliberate on the part of Allah. Why? Doesn't Allah want clarity for us? I mean, is he making things difficult for us? No. Allah did this so that mankind would be obliged to go back to the Prophet Muhammad for the understanding of Islam. So we can never feel that we are independent of Rasulullah This is why our Shahada is composed of the two portions. It's not just one portion, La ilaha illallah. No, there is Muhammadur Rasulullah. It is in there. It is in there so that we will understand that for us to be able to implement Islam, to understand and implement Islam, we have to come to the Messenger of Allah. We have to come to Him for our correct understanding, for the implementation of Islam. So, from this principle, we can see that the first step of the Qur'an, of, towards understanding the Qur'an, must involve coming to the Messenger of Allah. Now, traditionally, the scholars have said, that the first step is actually the tafsir or explanation of the Qur'an by the Qur'an itself. And truly, this is something which we have to consider. But it cannot stand alone. It does not stand independent as a single principle. And just to give you some example of the, you know, tafsir of Qur'an by Qur'an, so that uh, I can put it in uh, context for you. We have the verse, for example, in Surah Tariq, where Allah says, By the knocker, or the, or the night approacher, at Tariq. And what will make you understand what at Tariq is? Then Allah goes on to explain, and it is the piercing star, known as Venus. Right? So Allah uses the term At-Tariq, which could have a variety of different meanings. Then He goes on to explain that it is An-Najmusaqid. Sometimes these explanations are within the same chapter of the Quran. Sometimes they may be in one chapter and found in, a, in another chapter, you know, something is mentioned and it's found in another chapter. For example, in, um, in my, in my I mean, or later on in the chapter, Allah says, these which are herded have been named halal or allowable for you, except those which we will read to you. And then later on in the surah, Allah, Allah goes on to explain the dead animals, blood, pork, animal sacrifice for other than Allah, etc., etc. Uh, you have, for example, another verse where Allah says, Sight cannot catch him. 
This is in Surah Al-An'am, verse 103. Sight cannot catch him, in reference to Allah. Yet, later on, in uh, Surah Al-Qiyamah, verse 23, Allah goes on to explain that the believers will be gazing at their Lord. So, sight cannot catch him is a general principle. In this life, no one will see Allah. However, on the Day of Judgment, those who enter Paradise will see an aspect of Allah in Paradise. So, here is in a, another chapter a clarification of what Allah said in a, uh, another chapter. But as I said, this understanding of the Qur'an cannot stand alone because although in some cases some of these explanations may appear to be fairly straightforward where we're using a section of the Quran to explain another section however there are many cases where if one does not use a portion of the Quran according to how the Prophet Muhammad explained it, then you will make a misinterpretation of the Quran using its various verses. The Sunnah cannot be separated from the Quran in its understanding. It has to be there along with it. So in fact, what we're saying is that the first step involves looking at the Qur'an, trying to understand it within the context of the Qur'an, but relying also on the Sunnah, checking with the Sunnah to make sure that whatever understanding we have come out of the Qur'an with is not in contradiction to some explanation given by the Prophet ﷺ in the Sunnah. So we do not give precedence to what may be construed as interpretation of the Qur'an by the Qur'an over the Sunnah. Because when we put it into text form, we say the first step is explanation of Qur'an by Qur'an, then the second step is explanation of the Qur'an by the Sunnah, then this sort of implies that uh, once you have completed that first step, if you've got that explanation, you know, it can stand by itself. But this is not the case. We have to go further into look at the Sunnah to see and to be certain that that interpretation that we have gotten from the Quran by the Quran is not in any way uh, contrary to that which was explained by the Prophet Muhammad. And the importance of the explanation of the Quran by the Prophet has been emphasized within the Qur'an itself. We have, for example, the verse in Surah Al-Nahl, verse 44, in which Allah says, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَةِ لِتُبَيَّنِ النَّاسِ مَا نُزِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ Verily we have revealed the reminder to you, O Muhammad, so that you may explain to the people what has been revealed to them. So Allah is making it very clear there. That, that explanation, the understanding of the Qur'an has to come to the Prophet Muhammad He has also said 
which is in Surah Nahl, also verse 64. We have only revealed the book to you, Muhammad, in order that you clarify for them the things about which they differ. So, there was this primary role of the Prophet as the explainer and clarifier of the Quran to mankind. And, as I said, this principle was deliberately put in force by Allah in order that no one could feel that he can understand the Quran without coming to Prophet Muhammad And the significance of this is that in this way the meanings of the Quran have been preserved from misinterpretation because when we consider for example the Bible where each sects of Christianity, and we have so many sects you can't keep track of them, each sect will pick up the same verse, will read that same verse and says it means this, and that, and the other, and they are contradictory meanings, and each one is arguing from these points, but they are all using the same Bible. The reason being that there is for them no sunnah to define the meanings intended by those verses. So, the human mind is capable of imagining all kinds of things. And each sect has human minds at the head of it, making interpretations which suit themselves. So we have a multiplicity of interpretations. So, Islam, in order to preserve I'm not saying this is unique to Islam, for sure, in the time of Prophet Isa salam, he and his sunnah provided the clarification of the Injil. Only it has been lost. Most of it has been lost. And similarly, Prophet Musa, his explanation provided the clarification of the Torah. This is the role of all the Prophets. It is not unique to Prophet Muhammad However, in, in the Quran, which is the last revelation which we are dealing with, particularly here, this principle is the essential principle which preserves not only the text of the Quran, because you know we all know about how the Quran was preserved, the history of its preservation, which ensures the, the uh, authenticity of the text, but it also preserves the meaning, which is even more crucial because an authentic text without a surety as to its meaning, this is a placing in the hands of the deviants. So this was one of the ways, and as Allah said, he, he promised that he is the one who revealed the Quran and would bring it together and he is the one who would preserve it. Preserve it not only in its text, but in its meaning. And from this principle, we also are able to identify another principle which helps us to understand when somebody is deviating in his interpretation of the Qur'an. When we see a person who explains the Qur'an without referring back to the verses of the Qur'an 
and to the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallam, then we are certain that this person is deviating because he is not following the methodology which has been set by Allah and put into practice by the Messenger of Allah Sallam and his companions. So this is one of the signs of deviation. The next principle, we could call it the second principle, although some scholars put it as the third, as I mentioned. The first two I prefer to look at together. The second principle is that of understanding the Quran and its revelation in the context in which it was revealed. That is, a verse was revealed in a certain circumstance. And we know from the history of the revelation of the Quran that the Quran was not revealed all at one time. It was not revealed all at one time. Though we do have a verse in the Quran where Allah said that He has revealed the Quran on Laylatul Qadr. We all know this in Surah Al Qadr. Truly. But there are other verses in the Quran where Allah said that He has revealed the Quran in stages. And the Prophet Muhammad clarified that the Quran on Laylatul Qadr was taken from the Lawsh al Mahfud, the protected tablet in which all things are written in the heavens, and taken down to Baytul Izzah in the first heaven. This is what took place on Laylatul Qadr. And from there, Angel Gabriel then took portions of the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad according to the circumstances which arose. So much of the Quran was revealed to answer and to deal with certain circumstances which would take place in the life of the Prophet Muhammad Allah, knowing the destiny of man, knowing what the Prophet Muhammad would face throughout his life, prepared a book of revelation whose verses would deal with the various circumstances to come in the life of the Prophet Muhammad and Jibreel was then instructed to take verses from this chapter, that chapter, from all over, bringing it down at a particular point when the Prophet Muhammad needed it, when issues arose. Now, as I said, the context in which the revelation came gives us further understanding as to how to apply the verse. We have instructions from the Prophet Muhammad but then the context gives us, you know, a further, a deeper understanding. And that context now comes from the statements of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Their clarification of the uh, circumstances is the second level for the tafsir or commentary on the Qur'an. We look to see what did the companions of the Prophet say and do at the time when a particular verse was revealed. This is called the tafsir of the Qur'an by asar or sayings and actions 
of the companions of the Prophet An example of that is the verse in which Allah had said, whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed is a kafir, a disbeliever. Now when this verse was revealed, and this verse is in Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 44, Ibn Abbas said that it is a form of kufr less than the real kufr. Kufrun duna kufrin. In other words, this is not the ultimate kufr, as one may assume from the obvious meaning of the verse, but that this is kufr on a lesser level than the full-fledged kufr which assigns one to hell forever. And this was further explained to be the distinction between what is known as kufr qalbi and kufr uh, amali. That is kufr in actions and kufr in the heart. You see, uh, we also have, you know, classical example of this distinction being made by the Prophet in the case of Ammar ibn Yasir. You know, Ammar ibn Yasir, whose mother, Ammar, his mother, Sumeya, uh, uh, she was the first person to have died for the final message of Islam, died for the sake of the final message of Islam. Holding on to that final message, refusing to give it up, as a slave woman, she was murdered by her master, Sumeya. His father, Yasir, also was killed. Now, when Ammar's turn came, and the slave masters took him and started to torture him, and told him to say that Muhammad is a magician, and a liar, and that his gods were Lat and Uzza. When they put the pressure on him, he saw that death was in front of him. He said, Muhammad is a magician and a liar, and my god is Lat and Uzza, the idols of Quraysh. So Ammar used to attend the circle of the Prophet that he used to teach him. And after he said that, he stopped attending. And the Prophet noticed he was missing. So he asked, where is Ammar? Oh, no. So he said, send some companions to go to find out. Where is he? Bring him. So they went and they found him and they asked him, you know, what's happening? So he explained that what happened, you know, and she didn't want to come because of what he had said. So when they related back to the top Muhammad he told them to bring Ammar. So Ammar came. So when he came, he asked Ammar, when you said what you said, was your heart filled with Iman and faith? Or not? So he said, no, when I said it, you know, my heart was full, full of faith, faith in Allah. So then the Prophet said to him, if they do that to you again, say what you said again. So although in his actions, those statements that he made, these were statements and actions of Kufu. However, it is not in his heart. So this which may be defined as kufr on the outside was not kufr on the inside. It doesn't take him out of Islam and assign him to hell, which is what, uh, you know, Ammar fears. 
So the Prophet clarified that there is a distinction between the two in terms of action and belief. So a person may commit an act that we may define as being kufr. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is a kafir in the fullest sense of the word. You know, a person may commit fornication. This is among the acts of the kafir. But that act in and of itself does not make him a kafir. Similarly, the rule by other than Allah, this is kufr. However, if one, for example, not one, if one believes when one rules by other than Allah's laws, believing that these rules are superior to the rule of Allah, to the laws of Allah, French law, British law, so on, so is superior to the law of Allah, then he is in fact scattered in the fullest sense. That's Islam. However, if a person in a Muslim country, a country of Muslims, I should say, which has a legal system which is un-Islamic, but this person works within that framework with the intention of protecting Muslims, as, for example, a lawyer in this system. He works within the legal framework of the British legal system, which is a system of kufr, a rule of kufr. That person who goes and enters into the system with the intention of protecting Muslims, that though he may deal with these laws and seek rulings based on these laws, this does not put him into kufr. Can you grasp the distinction between two? It's very important for us practically speaking. Because some people will tell you, don't become a lawyer. Don't be, you know, you can't be. So it means then that when you have legal problems, you must go to the disbeliever. Maybe a Jew. You have to end up before him begging him to, to help you. you know? Whereas this is not the case. We should have Muslim lawyers. People who are familiar with this legal system, but people who should also be grounded in Islamic law to know the limitations. Because of course, though you may learn that legal system, this legal system here, it doesn't mean you can apply all of it. There are certain aspects of it where you may have to step back. And you cannot function the way that the lawyers of this system function in the sense that they will seek, you know, the best lawyer is the one who is best able to get off the worst criminal. And that's who is the best lawyer. The biggest criminal, this big guy was able to get him off, this makes him the best lawyer. Where, from an Islamic perspective, if somebody comes to you as a criminal, you cannot fight in his defense. You cannot go and protect him from the legal system, no. What you could, the only way you function within that system is to ensure the rights of people. Justly. You function within that system justly. This process, as I was mentioning, you know, where the languages were being turned over into Arabic came to a halt. And Arabic became the language or the knowledge of a limited few. We had now the rise of what we could call a priest class, something almost like a priest class, 
where the scholars, the ulama, were the ones who knew Arabic and the masses of the people didn't, in many parts of the Muslim world. So they were the only ones who had the key to go to the Quran. So the people, and in those times too, they prohibited the translation of the Quran into any other language. So the people were forced now to come to these individuals and have to depend on them for whatever understanding. And the teaching of Arabic for the recitation of the Quran, the pure recitation, became popular. And this spread throughout the Muslim world to a point where you had thousands and thousands of young people memorizing the whole Quran from Fatiha to Nas, being able to rattle it off completely and not understanding a word. The reading of the Quran of Bakr, blessing, became an accepted practice in the Muslim world. However, when we go back and look at the statement of the Prophet which people will quote back as support for it, well, he said that. But we cannot argue that he did say it. So we have to look back to see who was he saying it to? Was he saying this to a group of Persians? To a group of Ethiopians who didn't speak Arabic? No, he was speaking, he was saying this to Arabs who understood the Qur'an. This is who he was saying it to. So, when he was telling them that every letter that you recite of the Qur'an, you know, you get ten blessings for it, this was encouragement to them to read more and more of the Qur'an with understanding, because that's how they read the Qur'an, with understanding to increase their contact with the revelation, in the sense that the meanings, as more and more Qur'an is put into the individual with the meaning, this will change that individual. This is why in the early battles, you know, after the time of Prophet Muhammad and the time of Abu Bakr, when the Muslims were fighting the, the wave of apostasy that took place, the false prophets, etc., those who were being killed most were those who had memorized the most of the Qur'an. This is why Omar had come to Abu Bakr and said, listen, these people are being killed, you better write the Qur'an down in one book to preserve it. Because those who had read the Qur'an, memorized the Qur'an, it had changed them to such a degree that they were in the front lines of the battle. It motivated them, it had changed their character, made them into, you know, dynamic individuals. So they were in the front lines dying, giving up their lives for Allah. So, this is what Prophet was addressing. He was addressing them and encouraging them to recite, to understand more and more of the Qur'an. He was not telling them to parrot the Arabic records. We don't have any record of, you know, a person reciting to Al-Fatiha, because if you take the literal meaning of what the Prophet said, then you could be justified in reciting to Al-Fatiha as Alif Lam, Ha, Mim, Dal, Lam, Lam, Ha, that is Alhamdulillah. You know, I could recite the book it right down to the letters and just go with the letters. That's all. It's not the intent. The intent of the recitation of the Qur'an is not for barakah in the ritual of its recitation, but for barakah in exposure to the word of Allah in that you will change the character, the person of that individual who is reciting the Qur'an. This was the goal of the recitation of the Qur'an. Now, when we recite the Qur'an, uh, after, uh, after we have taken the various 
steps which have been outlined previously concerning how we go to understand the Quran. When we recite the Quran now, we will get an understanding from that Quran, which we now have to apply in our lives because the recitation, the reading of the Quran is for its application ultimately. As the companion said, we used to learn the Quran five verses at a time. And we didn't go on to another set of verses until we had learned all that Allah had to say, you know, all the rules, etc. And we attempted to apply it, then we went on to the next set of verses. This was their approach. Reading for understanding and application. This is the methodology. So now, when we have that understanding of the Quran based on Quran by Quran, Quran by Sunnah, by the explanation of the companions, the Arabic language, now we have to apply it. Now when we apply it, this is when we're using our own reasoning. We have to apply it to our circumstance today. Uh, to apply it to our circumstance today, we have to apply our reasoning, our, our opinion. If we have followed these steps, then applying it according to our opinion will be acceptable by Allah. Because we have done it according to the proper methodology. But now, if we apply the Quran according to our opinion without going through these steps, then we will be on a path other than that intended by the Quran. And this is by looking at these steps that we can identify the deviant. Because the deviant, when he is promoting the Quran, he will give you the text of the Quran and then he will give you his opinion. You don't hear anything about the context or the Arabic or, or he may jump straight from reciting a verse, go straight into the Arabic and give you his opinion. He doesn't come back to give you what the Prophet said and so on. So once you see any book and you pick up, you have many, many books which have tafsirs of, you know, Quran, etc., etc. If you pick up a book and you see that the man is, he brings a verse and he's just talking, 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 talking. It means this and that and we do this and that and you should do this and that. You don't see where he is explaining according to what the Prophet said, what the companions did, and, you know, including the Arabic meanings and so on. So if you don't see that, then beware, beware of that tafsir, because likely it will be a deviant tafsir, the person who is just giving you his personal opinion, very dangerous. Or if you see a person, for example, he is bringing the verses, he's just bringing it, the Arabic means this, the Arabic means that, and so on, so on, so on. As I told you, the danger of that is that Arabic has changed its meanings in time. What is in modern Arabic now is not, some of it is not what is understood in classical Arabic. So he will make a reference, you go back, you go to a modern Arabic dictionary and yes, it will agree with what he's saying. But that is not what the verse intended. And he will use this as a means of deviation. So the understanding of the methodology of tafsir is for us to be able to identify the steps that we should take. One if we are going to attempt commentary on the Qur'an, explaining it to others. Two, if we are reading texts which attempt to explain the meanings of the Qur'an, we should understand the correct steps to be able to distinguish between those 
who are promoting a deviant interpretation of the Quran and those who are promoting an Islamic, correct, orthodox interpretation of the Quran. At this point, inshallah, because we have a limited amount of time, and as I said, I wasn't going to attempt to cover everything of the principles of Tafsir because it's too vast a topic. I will now give you all an opportunity to ask any questions you'd like to ask, you know, pertaining to this uh, material. Um, those who have written questions uh, from the sisters who'd like to send them up, they may do so now. Any brothers who'd like to either write, we have some paper here, or if you'd like to just raise your hand, you may do so. And I just imagine that there are such things directly in the floor, then please use the mic. Rather, just to make it uh, clear to those people who didn't hear him, is uh, what is the level of kufr which is sufficient to condemn a person to hell eternally? Since I explained that there is different levels of kufr, and I actually gave the principle when I made the explanation, it was. The kufr, which is from the heart. A person who does a, a forbidden act, believing that this act is halal, it is all, believing that this act is allowable to him, he doesn't believe that it is prohibited, you know, it has no meaning to him, then that puts him in the full state of kufr. And that will condemn him to hell unless he repents before he dies. And of course, no matter what sin you may commit, you know, whether it's sins of kufr or sins in shirk, which is a form of kufr, uh, if one repents before one dies, that is, before one realizes that death is upon him, I don't mean when the angel of death comes, you know, death is here, your uh, soul is in your throat, then you repent. No. But if you repent prior to that, then that can cancel the act or the statement that you did in terms of it being a cause for you to be in hell eternally. So it is when it is in the heart, as I explained, the individual who enters into the legal system here, a Muslim, he becomes a lawyer, believing that British law is superior to Islamic law, or in the 
Muslim countries or countries of Muslims wherein a judge or a, an administrator is applying the law of the land which is not Islamic law, it's from French law to British law, believing that this law is superior, it is better than Islamic law when he has entered Kufr in the complete sense. Identify people as kafirs and thereby refuse to give salams to them or return their salams. We would not do so if their situation is not clear. If a person espouses a particular belief which is clearly uh, against the fundamental teachings of Islam, then that person, at least externally, that person is in a state of kufr and we deal with him as a kafir. If a person holds up a principle which says that God is a man, for example, Farrakhan, Farrakhan and his followers, Farrakhan says that God is a man. Hmm. Point number 12 on the back of the newspaper, it says, We believe that Allah, God, came in the person of Master Farad Muhammad in 1930 to America. So a person who says that, we don't have to ask him, Well, you know, do you really believe this? Are you a believer of this in your heart? No, no, no. It's enough. That is kufr. Outright kufr. Just like any Christian as a whole who says, I believe that God is the third of three, he's a Catholic as a whole. We can get that situation. But now when we have Muslims who are part or who uphold the same principles as we do, 
right? But they may be following one uh, jamaat, one group, or another group, then this is an area of danger for us now to start to label these type of people people as, as Catholics, unless they have openly made statements which are statements of kufr. If a person openly makes a statement of kufr, then you can define him as a Catholic, and you have the right to treat him as a Catholic. However, the fact that in his heart he may not uh, actually believe this, or he may be doing it for one reason or another reason, you see, that is with Allah. And Allah does not oblige us to determine what is in people's hearts. We judge according to what they say, what they do. You know, the classical example was in, that, in the case of Usama, he didn't the um, son of the former adopted son of the Prophet uh, who in, in, in a battle, after struggling with one of the disbelievers, managed to get on top of him, and when he was about to finish him off with his sword, the man said, La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah. This man is just saying, so he took his head off anyway. So now, what he did was reported back to the Prophet Muhammad And the Prophet Muhammad called his and he was upset, very upset, very angry with Usama. And he loved Usama. Everybody knew he, Usama was one of the closest people to him. Very upset with him. And he asked him, Did you open the man's heart? Did you open the man's heart to see what was in his heart? What he did was wrong. I mean, this is, I mean, logic tells us, right, you're looking at the circumstance, the man said, La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, a minute before that he was saying kufr and trying to kill you, and then when you get the chance not to kill him, he says, La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, I mean, your logic tells you he's just saying that to escape. But, we in Islam are commanded to judge by the statement. Initially, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. If he says this, we give him the benefit of the doubt. But it doesn't mean now you turn your back, you know, you say, okay, you get up, you turn your back, so <laughs> he may not be, it may be a fake, and he kill you. No. You give him the benefit of the doubt, but you keep him under observation. You know? Because there's doubt there. Still, you have to keep him under observation. And now, depending on how he goes from there, this will determine whether this statement was true or false. You follow? So his actions, actions can also annul. So the person may say, La ilaha illallah, and you go with him and you find him going into the Buddhist temple and making sujood in the act. You say, what well, the youth of this La ilaha illallah, this is kufr. He's only saying that, you know, to get over on the Muslims or something like this. So your actions can cancel, the, I mean, because I know some people go overboard and say, oh, he said La ilaha illallah, finish, you know, we have to accept him on Muslims. Oh. Not just like that. We accept them initially, but when they make certain actions which now contradict the validity of that statement, then we have to judge them in that fashion. And that's what happened in the case that I mentioned yesterday, you know, of Abu Bakr. When the people refused to give zakah, and they were threatening Medina, they were saying, either you give us this concession, let us off the of zakah, we're going to come and attack you. Muslims were in a position of weakness. The army had already been sent out, you know. So, 
this is the point we have to keep in mind that, you know, though a person, we have to judge from the outside, ultimately. We cannot judge what is in the heart. If a person says, La ilaha we take them initially on the basis of that. But if their actions or further statements contradict that, then we judge them accordingly. If a person's outer actions are those of kufr, then we judge that individual. Or his statements are those of kufr, then we judge that individual as a kafir. What is inside his heart is between him and Allah. We're not held responsible for that. Allah holds us responsible to judge according to external affairs. That's the general principle. Incorrect. However, it was done out of ignorance. 
And the man's faith, as he said, it was out of his fear of Allah, he was a good man. And he feared he had done wrong, and his fear was so great, he said, I don't want to stand before Allah, I have to stand before that. This is a very high level of faith. So, on the basis of that, Allah forgave him for the error of his act. And that is with Allah. To do as he chooses. We cannot go through and, and make these kind of judgments, of course, for people now. We're not in a position. This is with Allah, because Allah knows what is in the heart. He cannot go and say, Fulan, you know, or this Sheikh, Imam so and so, or that Sheikh, or whatever, you know, he has sincere intention and such great fear of Allah, even though he's doing this Sheikh, he's alright, Allah's gonna forgive him, no. We do not have that authority to do so. I'm just telling you that it is with Allah that it is possible that he may forgive that individual who is doing this out of ignorance. Because Allah knows ultimately what is in his heart. But, without a doubt, this is obvious from the question itself, uh, that act, the act of using the Qur'an as, an, as a talisman, you know, or as an amulet to ward off evil, this is incorrect. This is not acceptable Islamically. The Qur'an is not to be used in this fashion. The Qur'an is recited. Ayatul Kursi, I know people, it's very common, they will make an Ayatul Kursi, hang it on the wall. Or they make Ayatul they will write Ayatul Kursi so small on a, on a piece of gold, you know, you can't read it. You have to use a microscope to read it, and they will hang it you know, it's jewelry for women, or do you see people competing with the sizes of the Qur'an, where you say, oh, we found the Qur'an in Kuwait, they found a Qur'an, they bought a Qur'an which is one inch by one inch. They say, oh no, in India we made one which is three quarters of an inch by three quarters of an inch. These Qur'ans, which you, you, you need a microscope now, almost an extra microscope to be able to read this Qur'an. They say, what is the purpose of these Qur'ans? They're putting it inside of lockets and they work around the necks and, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not the Qur'an. Do not use it on the Okay, brothers, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika, nishadu la ilaha al-ad, astaghfiruka wa nishubu ilayk. We ask Allah to help us to understand the Qur'an as it was meant to be understood and to apply it in our lives and to call others to that correct understanding and application.